Welcome back to episode 191 of the Prof. JC Leadership Podcast. Today we're talking about uh, counterinsurgency. We're in Mental Models Monday. And so today I want to dive in and I want to talk about this idea of counterinsurgency and how this works as a good mental model for you and for me. Uh, I'm on this website called fs.blog. And uh, let's just dive in. The article's entitled, Counterinsurgency Fighting Back. Counterinsurgency Fighting Back. The Basics. For an accurate definition of counterinsurgency and the flip side, insurgency, we can look to one of the definitive texts on the topic. In Counterinsurgency, David Kilcullen writes the following. An insurgency, according to the current U.S. military field manual on the subject, is an organized movement aimed at the overthrow of a constituted government through the use of subversion and armed conflict. Stated another way, an insurgency is an organized, protracted, political, military struggle designed to weaken the control and legitimacy of an established government occupying power or other political authority while increasing insurgent control. The same field manual defines counterinsurgency as the military, paramilitary, political, economic, psychological, and civic actions taken by a government to defeat insurgency. Counterinsurgency, therefore, is an umbrella term that describes the complete range of measures that governments take to defeat insurgencies. There is no template, no single set of techniques for countering insurgencies. Counterinsurgency is simply whatever governments do to defeat rebellions. Okay? In essence, and here's the article's, um, the article continues, in essence, counterinsurgency involves the attempts governments make to restore peace. The aim is to minimize civilian deaths while strengthening the influence of governments. No rule book or particular strategy exists. Counterinsurgent forces combine psychological, military, economic, and political techniques. In the end, counterinsurgents try to create stability in the least harmful way possible, allowing a country to return to normal functioning. Okay, so that's really important. Here's how counterinsurgency works. Counterinsurgency is complex and delicate, full of metaphorical minefields. Combat can be viewed as a sped-up evolutionary process wherein both sides adapt constantly in response to the behavior of the other. Each learns to defend themselves and to predict risk to their agenda. One critical omnipresent element is the effort to forge partnerships with civilian populations. We often see photographs of soldiers handing out toys and sweets to children in war, zone, war zones. What seems like a simple act of kindness is actually a clever military tactic. Small efforts like that compound to create trust and subsequent cooperation. The more a population sides with counterinsurgents, the less power insurgents have. Kilcullen writes, insurgents cannot operate without the support of the local population. Violence against non-combatant civilians by security forces, whether intentional or accidental, is almost always entirely counterproductive. One common method is to force the population to move to a different area, making insurgents easier to identify. 
Civilians may be forced to carry ID and have it checked at regular intervals. Food supplies for insurgents can be cut off, such as through the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam to kill crops. In the article, book, Counterinsurgency Warfare, David Galula expands upon this key component of counterinsurgent efforts. The population represents this new ground. If the insurgent manages to, uh, to disassociate the population from the counterinsurgent, he will win the war. Thus, the battle for the population is a major characteristic of the Revolutionary War. Other theorists have explained that the objective is to gain support, not terrain. Another typical technique is the restoration of as much stability as possible to reduce the power of insurgents. Galula writes, Prompting disorder is a legitimate objective for the insurgent. It helps to disrupt the economy, hence to produce discontent. It serves to undermine the strength and the authority of the counterinsurgent. Moreover, disorder, the normal state of nature, is cheap to correct and very costly to prevent. The article goes on. Populations of people tend towards entropy without coherent political, economic, social, and educational structures. Insurgents aim to disrupt these with counterinsurgents uh, aim to rebuild them. Looking at conflicts he has experienced, Galula considers the perspective of the perspectives of both sides. Despite the liquid nature of counterinsurgency, he outlines the key principles. Firstly, the goal is to gain support rather than control. Once a population supports its governing bodies, conflict becomes unlikely. Even an uncooperative population must be safe while mutual trust builds. Galula advocates starting in one location and spreading out, using it as a safe base until the surrounding areas can be controlled. This is known as the oil spot strategy. He sums up his attitude thus, build or rebuild a political machine from the population upwards. Counterinsurgency techniques tend to be formed through trial and error based on our understanding of a particular location and feedback loops. As David Morris, a former Marine, puts it, in order to learn a lesson, you had to lose somebody. Now, according to Dr. Lorenzo Zambernardi, Zambernardi, hope I'm saying that correctly, counterinsurgency involves three main goals. Number one is the protection of counterinsurgent forces. A classic rule for firefighters states that the safety of the rescuer is always more important than that of the person being rescued. The same applied to counterinsurgents. Number two, the formation of a separation between insurgents and non-combative civilians. Counterinsurgents must create a physical or mental barrier. Sometimes this is done by moving non-combatants to a different location or providing them with ID cards. Separation can be psychological, teaching people that they should not side with insurgents and are, part, and are not part of the conflict. Understanding of the human terrain is required. And number three, the destruction or conversion of insurgents. This might involve undermining power structures, cutting off resources, or strategic assassinations. The origin of counterinsurgency. Santa Cruz de Marcenado. We can trace the roots of counterinsurgency back to the 18th century when Santa Cruz de Marcenado or Mar Marcenado wrote of the concept in Reflexiones Militares. 
Santa Cruz wrote, a leader must win the trust of a population rather than battering them into submission with physical force, a somewhat modern attitude for early, 18, uh, early 1700s. Recognizing that rebellion is a risky endeavor, he cautioned leaders to realize that people do not revolt without strong logic. Santa Cruz's writing was based on his own experiences during the War of the Spanish Succession, which was 1701 to 1714. The conflict occurred both within Spain and with rival nations. He ultimately, he would ultimately lose his life in a Spanish colonial war. Santa Cruz's principles outlined in the text are still relevant today. He encouraged leaders to take preventative measures against insurgencies, namely uh, the fair treatment of all. People must be respected and allowed to continue their traditions and cultural practices whenever possible. Counterinsurgent forces must behave according to strict protocol with punishments for anyone who, who, um, who, who, who express cruelty. However, Santa Cruz did still advocate cutting off food supplies to a population and using intense mil mil military force to end insurgencies in the shortest time possible. The impact of Frank Kitson on counterinsurgency. The works of Frank Kitson have found foundational importance have foundational importance in counterinsurgent doctrine. Kitson is a controversial figure due to his role in assassinations and the Bloody Sunday Massacre during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. He was not adverse to discarding legal and ethical considerations for the sake of his goals as leaders. Expanding upon the ancient writings of Sun Tzu, he advocated mirroring insurgent behavior in order to understand them. Kitson also made use of spies within insurgent groups to garner information. His strategies created uncertainty and confusion amongst rival power structures, as well as destabilizing their public image. One soldier summed up the tactics under Kitson's guidance. We were not there to act like an army unit. We were there to act like a terror group. His theory stressed the importance of the media in counterinsurgency. Kitson's theories formed the basis of the way the British counterinsurgents handled the Northern Irish conflict. A counterinsurgent group, the MRF, targeted the insurgents, the IRA, by essentially using enhanced versions of their own tactics against them. Many of their strategies were morally repugnant. Civilians were killed to show the population that the IRA could not protect them. Innocent people were shot at random to create further unrest. As this illustrates, counterinsurgency is a complex, delicate technique which often leads to moral dilemmas. It is undeniable that Kitson's strategies led to many innocent deaths. However, the risk was high at the time of unrest spreading to the rest of UK uh, with the potential for huge numbers of casualties. Counterinsurgents in Northern Ireland aimed to quell this risk as soon as possible before the situation worsened. Kitson saw the transgression of legal boundaries as necessary during, uh, during counterinsurgency. There are always going to be controversies surrounding counterinsurgency. In part, this is due to the confused relationship between cause and effect during the conflict. No one can quite say what led to or, or ended a period of unrest. Consequently, the efficacy of counterinsurgency is difficult to gauge. Individuals such as Kitson often come under fire as the public seeks to blame someone for the loss of lives. Removed from the situation, we cannot expect to understand counterinsurgent motives. We also cannot know what the consequences of acting differently or not at all would have been.
So here's what I'm going to say. Okay, there's a lot more that we could read about this, but here's what I'm going to say. This idea of the mental model for counterinsurgency is simply this. It's simply this. There's, there are easier ways, and, and I hate to say this, but this is the best way that I can say it. There are easier ways to gain control of a population or a team or an organization than coming in with a heavy-handed fist. Counterinsurgency, as they talked about there, at times it's coming in and it's bringing candy. And it's walking around and it's shaking hands and it's smiling. You know, yes, you're a soldier still. We've seen videos, especially, I think, back to David Petraeus. Uh, and this would have been after September 11th when they were going into uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, all of that mess there. They used counterinsurgency you know, tactics. And during that time, you would see soldiers walking around these villages, but they would still be soldiers. They still had their weapons. Sometimes they had their weapons at the ready. They would still have their helmet, full battle gear. But they'd be walking around, and they'd be smiling, and they'd be shaking hands, and they'd be getting to know the locals, and they would just be a part of the local area. And so the theory is if we can gain more trust as counterinsurgents than the insurgents have, then we're going to be able to take over this area more peacefully with less loss of lives than what the insurgents are going to be able to do. And so the lesson for all of us is simply this idea of, okay, if we're trying to make headway in terms of our leadership in an organization, wherever it might be, it, it seems to be that it would be easier for us to come in and be nice. I don't know if that's the best word to use. To be amenable. To work with people versus, uh, versus working against them. And, and here's the reason why I say this. That seems, that seems intuitive to you and to me. We say, of course, that's what I'm going to do. Of course, I would come in and I would, you know, um, you know, I would treat people well and I would do the, you know, I would do what I need to do. Of course, I would do that. That's what we say. That's what we think. But the reality is simply this. Not everyone's going to do this. And I work with leaders all the time that don't understand this. And so they come into organizations and it's this top down, heavy handed kind of leadership. What this mental model says is anytime I walk into a situation, I need to understand that there, it's, it's, it's better to attract flies with honey than it is with you know what else, right? Actually, that's probably not true. But I think the saying goes, right, if in my home, right, if there's going to be flies, I'd rather have them be attracted through honey than through the other, right? Because then you've got flies and, right, crap. So I think that's the mental model that I want you to keep with today is this idea of counterinsurgency. When you're coming into a new organization, a new role, whatever it may be, what are ways that you could come into that new organization, that new role, okay? And how could you come in and build relationships? And how can you come in easy? And, and how can you come in uh, silently, quietly, easily, as opposed to coming in with a heavy hand and a, and a heavy fist? That's all I got for you today. I hope you have a wonderful week. I'll see you on the next episode of the Prof, J, uh, the Prof JC Leadership Podcast. Take care.